Today is, we're having our Independence Day barbecue, and this week we'll be celebrating 4th of July, and it's an opportunity for us to reflect, an opportunity for us to be, be grateful for those that thought freedom was something worth fighting for, that were willing to step out and that were willing to, to defend our country, that were willing to stand up for our country. And, and that's something that July 4th is about celebrating that as well as the, the freedom that we have to even be sitting in this place to worship. However, not everything we fight for is worth fighting for. Would you agree? My, my kids remind me of this every day. Every week. Okay, maybe every day. Uh, we're sitting at the table, and the thing about sitting at a table is you're often facing each other. It just sort of works out that way. We tend to sit facing in at our table. And, and, and we're sitting there, and... and Almost every meal, someone will say, he's staring at me or she's looking at me. And we're like, yeah, that's sort of what happens when you're a family. You're, you're looking at each other. You're, you're sharing a meal together. You're sharing life together. And all these things come up. You know, the whole, the, the boys are going at it. And he hit me back first. And we're like, okay, that sort of lets us know what happened. And, and, and all these things happening that every day with our, our children, we're thinking, Man, that's just not worth fighting for. That's just not worth fighting over, getting worked up about. Because in the broader scheme of life, as we look at what's important in life, whether or not my brother or sister happens to glance at me at the table is probably not the thing that I want to get upset about. It's probably not the thing that I want to spend my time fighting for, the cause that I want to take up. But yet one of my children loves to take up that cause and is not satisfied until it's taken care of. This morning I want to talk about what causes are worth taking up. And one in particular, as we come to Colossians chapter 2, and as Paul is, is sharing his heart and his burden for the church at Colossae, and, and we, we see from what he writes, and we see from this letter he writes, something that is worth fighting for. Something that is worth taking a cause up for. And I'm not necessarily talking a, a fighting as in a, a call to arms, but fighting as in worth spending time and energy, a cause that burdens us, a cause that concerns us. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And as you turn there, remember the church at Colossae is one that is doing pretty well, but all kinds of external pressures are coming in. Sort of the armies are encamped at the gates, ready to take down their theology, ready to take down what's happening in the church, the community, trying to destroy this church. And Paul is rallying the troops and talking about what is worth taking up a cause for. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1-5. through 5. I'd like to read the text and then we'll dig into it and see what God has for us in it. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray together. Dear Lord God, as we come to your word, as we dig into 
the divinely inspired words that you had Paul write. Challenge us with those, Lord God. Open our hearts to that. May we be burdened by the same things you are burdened about. And may that affect how we act, how we view the church, how we view each other. Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to illuminate your word to In Jesus' name, amen. As we read these five verses, we come to a point where Paul is now getting a little bit more personal. Last week, as Fred shared, Paul was a little more general in nature, talking about what was important, the sharing of the gospel, and, and his heart for all to hear the gospel. And in these verses, Paul narrows his focus down to the people he's writing. And sort of, we get past the introduction, and now the people reading the letter are like, ah, he, he's talking about me now. And so the, you can just picture their attention coming to the text as they get interested in what Paul is saying here. And in verse 1 there, the first thing we see is that the church is worth fighting for. The church is worth fighting for. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. And Paul begins his admonition to the church and his encouragement to the church, his instruction to the church by sharing his heart for the church. And that always has to be the order we take it. And our heart for the church, our heart for the things of the Lord, then turn into our admonition and our encouragement and our exhortation. And it's interesting to see how he words it. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for the church. And that word for struggle there is a word that comes from the the Greek agon. Any ideas what word in English we have out of agon or agon? Agony. Agony. That's the word that Paul is using here. I have agony for the church. And and it's not so much one of distress, but one of constant concern. That he is is burdened for the church. And so you get words like struggle, where you're struggling for the church. Where you you are doing the things that, that show your heart that is dedicated to this church. We get the word agony out of it. and, And the idea is sort of a contest a fight for something, a struggle against opposition. There's a, there's a little bit of athletic imagery here. And so think through, any of you run any races? Maybe not recently, but at some point. <laughs> Anyone run any races? Okay, a few of you run. You get to the end of the race, and what are you fighting against? Pain. <laughs> Agony. <laughs> Absolutely. You're, you're fighting to continue, right? You're, I just want to finish. One of the things that we did on our trip was we hiked Masada, which was maybe not one of my wiser decisions on the trip, because it was somewhere around 105 to 120, depending on where you were on the mountain, all in the sun, and get near the top, and and you're looking up a cliff at the top, and, and you see most of the rest of the group sitting there drinking water on the rail, looking at you. And at that point, that's the idea of I am going to struggle to finish. Not so much physically, but I am going to push through and do what it takes to finish. And so Paul uses that imagery to describe his heart for the church. How great a struggle I have for you. Now we know he struggled physically. He was in chains. He was writing this from prison. But probably more likely what he's talking about here is his concern for the church his burden for the church, his prayer for the church. Notice what he says about the struggle. For I want you to know how 
great a struggle. He describes it not just as a struggle, not just as this fight against opposition, but he puts an exclamation point on it and says, this is a great struggle. This is what I'm burdened for. If someone was to ask you, what are you burdened for? What consumes you? Think about this. What consumes you? What takes your thoughts? What do you find yourself dwelling on? And then we get to know what your great struggle is. Maybe it's your children. Moms, dad, moms and dads, do you agonize over your children? Struggle for your children in prayer? Why? Why? What? Because you love them, right? Because you love them. And that love is what keeps you on your knees praying for them when when they're somewhere that you don't know where they are. That love is what keeps you up at night whether you're laying in bed, tossing and turning, waiting for them to get home because you love them and you care about them. It consumes you. That's what Paul's heart was for the church. Second, in 1 Thessalonians 2.8, Paul describes, and we talked about this verse on Mother's Day, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Paul describes the church as someone, something that has become dear to him. Flip just back a couple pages to Philippians 1, verse 7. Philippians 1, verse 7. Paul again is talking about the church. He's talking about his heart for the church. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partner, partakers with me of grace. I hold you in my heart. And we, through these verses, we begin to see a picture of Paul's mode of ministry. He will love the church, care about the church, hold them in his heart. The church is worth fighting for. So many times we, we can hear people talking that are putting down the church in America or are putting down the institution of church. But we are putting down the very thing that God loves and God has created. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And this is instruction to those leading the church. But catch the next phrase. To care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. As we think about the church, as we think about our local church, as we think about the universal church, our feelings for the church should be influenced by the fact that God purchased the church with His own blood. Do you think that's precious to Him? Do you think that's dear to Him? We need to have God's heart. God's heart for the church. In Ephesians 5.25, a passage we typically use of marriage because it says a lot of great things about marriage, but we don't want to lose what it says about God's feelings for the church. Husbands, love your wives. And we clue into that and the wives are like, yes, preach it. 
Husbands, love your, love your wives. But the next phrase gives us a, a clue into God's feelings for His church. As Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. As Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, willing to die for her. If that is God's heart for the church, that is to be our heart for the church. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen my face. And Paul's not just talking about the people that know him, the people he's invested in. He's talking about the... He's never been to this church before. This is a granddaughter church of his that, that his converts then founded. So he doesn't even know these people and his heart is so burdened for him, them. Not because of personal relationships, but because God's heart is burdened for them. When we say the church is worth fighting for, let me give another example that might help. Men, what if I walked up to your wife and just slapped her across the face? How many of you would let me still be standing? What emotions, just as I say that, and, and now you're like, well, you would never do that. No, I wouldn't because I'd be scared of you. But um, <laughs> why wouldn't I do that? But more important than that, why would you get so upset if I do that? You love her. And when we hear people berate the church, and when we hear people put down the bride of Christ, how do you think he feels? That's the imagery directly from God's Word. The church is worth fighting for. It's, it's, it's important to see that Paul starts by saying, I struggle for you because I love you. I care for you. Two things to remember out of that. First one, you are struggled for. You are struggled for. The shepherds of this church have you in their heart and believe in you and pray for you and are concerned for you and it is a daily consuming struggle and that is a good thing. And I say that to you just as Paul said it to this church. Not Paul's intention wasn't to show pity on the Colossian church and say, well, you know, we care about you. And No, he, he was trying to establish a foundation for ministry and an understanding that he cared for them deeply. And so what he was about to say takes on a whole new importance. And for you as a church, you are cared about that deeply. You are struggled for. In 2 Corinthians 11.28, another church that Paul is writing to, he writes this, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And this isn't a false anxiety or a worry of not trusting in God. This is a shepherd that's caring about the sheep that God has placed under him. And I know to a man, the leadership of this church and the elders of this church care about you in that way. What a wonderful thing. Paul is saying to the Colossians, you are struggled for. To the Laodiceans, you are struggled for. Second thing to remember out of this, and that the, the church is that important, something worth fighting for, is that we all are to struggle for the church. 
We all are to fight for the church, to minister to the church, to be concerned about the church. As Paul ministered out of love, we all are to minister the same way. As Paul struggled and and was concerned for the church and contested for the church, we are to minister in the same way. My prayer is that we have 200 defenders of the church sitting in this room. 200 people that are willing to stand up and say, I will defend the other people in this room. Because this is God's church. He bought it with His very life. The church is worth fighting for. Second point we see in verses 2 and 3 as Paul continues this thought and he begins to answer the, the question, well, what is the struggle for? I gave the example of my kids and some of the things my kids struggle about and want to defend and stand up for are are issues that are not worth spending a moment of time on. And so Paul here helps us understand, okay, what does it mean to fight for the church? What does it mean to struggle for the church? And we get an insight because he says, this is what my prayer is for the church. So your second point in your notes is we need to fight for the right things. We need to fight for the right, right things. See, in a church setting, when we fight for the wrong things, the only thing that comes out of that is division and dissension. So we need to fight for the right things, and God's Word tells us what those are, starting in verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged. We're going to see three things, and these three things are a circle where one feeds into the next, that feeds into the next, and that brings us back to the first. They're all interrelated. But the first thing that we see is we're to strive to encourage souls. Strive to encourage souls. Every Sunday when we walk in that door, what, what our prayer should be is, God, who do you want me to encourage today? Who do you want me to encourage today? This is my family. Who do you want me to build up? That their hearts may be encouraged is the first thing Paul mentions when he talks about his struggle, his prayer for the church. That word there, encouraged, is the same one we talked about a couple weeks ago, parakaleo, which it means to come alongside. And remember the example I gave is if one of my sons is off doing something, what I'll do is I'll just go up and put my arm around his shoulder and onto his chest and I'll bring him alongside where I'm going, the correct direction. And that's the picture we have here of encouraging. It's not just, don't go there, don't go there, but coming And saying, son, walk with me. Walk with me this way. And Paul is using that as the imagery for for the church that we're to encourage one another. Come alongside one another in the struggles and say, I'm praying for you and I'm praying that God will strengthen you. And walking through that struggle together. When we look at a a verse like their hearts may be encouraged, when we think of hearts, the first thing we think of is usually our emotions. And so, so we, we might read this verse by thinking, well, it's about being, you know, helping people emotionally get up and, and not be discouraged. And and there's elements of that. But in the Hebrew mindset, the, the seat of the emotions was actually the stomach and the bowels area. That was where they felt deep emotions. The heart included concepts of personality and mind. And so when when Paul says, be encouraged in heart, we might think, be encouraged in their whole person, in who they are, in right thinking. And so when we come alongside and encourage someone, it's not just, you can do it, you can do it, you can go forward, yes, go. It's, 
bringing them to thinking about things correctly and godly. Saying, what is God doing in this situation? What might the Holy Spirit be trying to teach you? How might God strengthen you to get through this? Have you thought about this or have you forgotten that we have a sovereign God who is preeminent above all things? And we're putting our arm around and we're directing thinking back to God's Word and who He is. It's interesting that this was Paul's first statement to the church at Colossae. A church that was starting to face external threats. And you know how it is when things and circumstances start pounding in and and threats start pounding in, we can get discouraged in our very spirit, in our very soul. And he says, church, stand up and start encouraging one another. Speaking truth into each other's lives. Helping our, our thinking direct, be directed to Christ, who is the only answer and the only source of true strength. And so by, by saying this, Paul is actually putting up the walls and fortifying the church against what they're facing. He's helping them be deeply rooted in Christ and to think correctly. We've, we've talked about encouragement before. We've talked about lifting each other up. But keep in mind as we study any passage, one of the clues to understanding the depth of it is context, context, context. What did Paul say in verse 1 was his heart for the church? To struggle, to strive for the church. That this was work, that this was so important that it would consume him. And we come to this next verse where it talks about encouragement. May your hearts be encouraged. And we have to apply that striving, that consuming nature to our desire to encourage one another. This isn't something to take lightly. This is something that is the heart of God for His church that He bought with His blood. And we're to strive for. In your worship folders, we put another round of encouragement cards of encouragement cards. And I encourage you to take those and fold them in half and sometime this week write a note to somebody else in this church. And let's be a church that puts into practice God's Word and encourages each other. And I'd like to follow what Paul is meaning here and and not just say, hey, you looked really nice on Sunday or, or something like that, but to speak God's truth into their lives. Not as that we have truth and they don't. The best way to do that is with Scripture. Because then it's not my words. It's not my truth. But to say, hey, God put this Scripture on my heart for you. Write that in there. And we are beginning to direct our thoughts to Christ and to His Word and the power of His Word. Now I know what can happen. I know we can walk out of here and we can go to the the, the picnic and have a great time and play some softball. I hear there's some challenges on the floor for some games, but um, and, and we can forget all about this, and these notes can be put aside, and we can forget that this is something to strive to do. Can we as a church make sure we do this this week? Make sure that we encourage each other with God's Word. Let's make it happen. So the first thing when Paul is describing what the right thing is to strive for is to encourage that our hearts may be encouraged. 
strive to encourage souls. The next phrase of verse 2 is, is just as important. Paul is building a case here. And the next phrase is being knit together in love. Being knit together in love. And that word being there means it's tied to the encouragement one another. In fact, this is the means of encouraging one another. If we're not knit together in love, we have no way to encourage one another. So these two go hand in hand. What comes to mind, and you, you can answer back again, what comes to mind when you hear the words knit together? Sweater. What was that? A sweater, absolutely. And that's one of the things that this is from. In my, in my vast knitting experience, you, you, <laughs> you're looking at me like you have no clue about knitting as she's knitting. <laughs> you, you take yarn, right? Okay, so this is something I don't know much about. You take yarn and you make loops and you take the implements and you loop more yarn through those loops, right? And, and so the yarn works together to be knit together, loop within loop, to create a sweater or to create a garment or, or an object. What happens if you maybe cut a few of those loops out? It all unravels. It all unravels. That's the imagery Paul is using for the church. Men and women, we are loops. And we are knit together. And we are to be knit together. And there's this sense of interdependence of being knit together that if we say, oh, my loop's gone, or oh, my loop's gone, then everything connected to that begins to become unraveled. Are we knit together? Do we see that kind of interdependence? The other way that that Paul sometimes uses this word is for parts of the body. Muscles, ligaments, tissues, bones, sinews. What happens if, let's say... Some modern, this wouldn't be modern, but some medical advancement happened and I could just take all the bones out of my body. I'd be nuts. Be a blob up here. What happens if, okay, no, bones are needed, so let's just take all of the ligaments out of my body. Keep in mind those attached muscles. I can't move if I don't have ligaments attaching to muscles, to bones, and other parts of my body. Everything is interrelated. And what Paul is saying when he says being knit together in love is to begin to see the church as interdependent on each other. Interrelated. What I do affects Phil. What Phil does affects Cinda. What Cinda, and we could go on and on and on. What we do affects each other. And Paul is trying to pound this into their heads. You need each other. Sort of ironic that we're talking about that on Independence Day weekend. Because Paul's not saying it's about independence. He's saying it's about the fact that you need each other as a church. Being knit together. One of the things that that impacted me, one of the many things that impacted me in my time in Israel was the concept of community. The concept of being knit together and being dependent on each other. We visited a number of sites and archaeological digs and, and one of the things that was astounding was that these cities that we read about in the Bible, these grand cities, were often about the size of our campus. And that would be a whole city. Maybe on top of a hill. And there was all kinds of reasons on top of a hill because you could defend it and, and a, a lot of other reasons. But as we looked at these, these cities and houses that shared walls and you had common areas 
it was amazing to see the, the way that they viewed community. And it was necessitated by the fact that if they were not community, they died. And, and, I, and I don't say that lightly. When you live in the desert and, and you decide not to be part of community or not to work in community where you are sharing water, that you are praying that you have enough water to survive, if you leave that community, you die. You protect each other. You share food. And all of that is the context that Paul is using when he talks about community in the church. It's not just let's have a barbecue together. And I pray that we we have a great time together and we find ourselves knit together. It's about coming together and needing each other. And, And viewing the church as important enough to be needed and to need other people. Yeah, it's hard. Many of the villages we lived in were, were, were that close in heat. And, and if you just live next to somebody and rub shoulders with somebody in, in 105 degree heat for long enough, you're going to get angry. You're going to get sweaty. It's going to be... Ugh. But our lives depend on community and being knit together in love. And I don't think it's any different today. Our spiritual lives depend on community. In fact, in verse 3, that's exactly where Paul's going to go with it. Just so we're not getting to the next point yet, but look at the beginning of verse 3. Or rather the next phrase, still in verse 2, sorry. Knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Underline that first word, to. Because Paul is linking and he's saying, encouraging each other's hearts, being knit together in love the result of that is a deeper understanding of Christ. So if you take away the aspect of community, what do you do to the result? You take it away. And so Paul is saying spiritually, the idea of being united, uh, of loving one another, of encouraging one another, is directly related to how well we can understand the mysteries of who God is and what Jesus has done for us. Is it important? Is it worth fighting for? Absolutely. Absolutely. You see, the reason we're to be knit together, the reason why that's even possible in the diverse setting that we are is because we all have been covered by God's grace. We all have come to the cross equally as sinners. We all have had His grace and His blood poured out in forgiveness for our sins. And now we are equally sons and daughters of the King. And we focus on so many other things that that threaten our relationships in the church and it breaks God's heart that that is happening in His church because it's about the blood that has covered our sins and brought us into His family. A little bit later in this chapter, Colossians 2.19, just look at that verse down the page. And not holding fast to the head, he's challenging them of what can happen when they don't come together in unity. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And we see that the source of our nourishment, the source of our community, is the fact that God Himself, that Jesus is the head of the church. The source can't be our own desires, it can't be our hurts, it can't be our egos, it has to be the work of Christ. 
Jesus keeps pounding this in His teaching. In John 17, His prayer is that we will be one. In John 13, 35, He says, By this all people will know that you are My disciples if you have love for one another. Is it important? It directly affects our witness. Francis Schaeffer called the unity of the church the final apologetic to the watching world. If we are not living in love and unity, if we are not living in peace, if we are not knit together, we are not displaying Christ. How do we do this? How do we live in close quarters, in community? How do we fight against the enemy and not against each other? Humility is the key. Humility where we come under the blood of Christ and say, I can't do anything on my own. I need Christ. Then we're ready to fight together. Philippians 2, 3-4 through 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You've heard me say that verse many times. But how many times do we rewrite that verse in our heads and we say something like, do everything to get what you want and be noticed. Be upset when someone else has what you want. Stand up for yourselves as you are important. Protect your own interests, even if it means putting down others. And we rewrite God's commands and we don't follow them. And the church that He bought suffers. The second way that Paul says to fight for the church is to be knit together. To be knit together. Strive to make bonds with others in the church. Strive to make connections. Strive for that. The third thing that we're to strive for that Paul prays for in the rest of 2 and in verse 3, strive to make knowing Christ central in our church. Strive to make knowing Christ central in our church. Paul encourages their heart. He promotes unity. But all of that pointing to being able to have a deeper understanding of what Christ has done. It all works together. The practical and the theoretical. The theology. It all works together. And so we see in the rest of verse 2, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, or which is Christ. See, we cannot properly know the mystery of God. We cannot properly know Christ without unity and encouragement within the body. A couple of things as you read verse 2 there, to reach all the riches of full assurance. Some of your translations might, might say complete there. But full assurance gives the idea of confidence that as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling in the body of Christ, we have confidence to know who Christ is and that Christ is working in our lives. Confidence in our Christian walk comes from knowing Christ. And then you see a familiar phrase, and the knowledge of God's mystery. This comes up in a number of Paul's writing. And whenever we see a word like that, we just say, well, what's the mystery in mystery? What's, what's he trying to say there? Do we understand that? And there's just to boil it down, books are written on this, but to boil it down, when Paul talks about mystery, he's generally talking about two things. The first is salvation through Christ. Salvation through the cross. 
Salvation through Christ's payment in our place for our sins. See, in the Old Testament, they had no clue that that was what it was going to look like. They were still expecting a Messiah that would come and rule and reign and, and, and take the Romans out of power and rescue them. And so Paul says throughout the Old Testament, this was a mystery. The prophets talked about it. But it was a mystery how God was going to work. But the answer to the mystery is in Jesus Christ and His payment on the cross. This would have been especially important to the church at Colossae. As people were coming in and saying, there's still a mystery. In fact, if you get in our inner circle, we'll tell you the secret handshake and the mystery and you'll be, you'll be saved then. And so Paul is saying, well, no, no, you know the mystery. And in fact, if you read on, you know it in its entirety. In whom, in verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Paul is putting up another defensive shield saying, you have all that you need to know to walk with God. You have all that you need to know. It's through Jesus Christ and the payment on the cross and nothing else. The second part of mystery that we saw in last week's text and we see throughout Paul's writing is part of the mystery was that Gentiles got to be part of this. That Gentiles got to be part of this blessing. That salvation is open to all. And that would have been a foreign concept to the Jews of the time. How on earth could God make salvation open to the Gentiles? And that was part of the mystery that God, through Jesus Christ, would bless all nations. All nations. Flip with me back to Ephesians 3. I want to hit this in the time that we have left. Ephesians 3, verse 4. We see Paul talking about mystery here to the church at Ephesus. And it helps us understand, but also helps us appreciate what God has provided through the death of His Son on the cross and His resurrection. Ephesians 3, verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ. So you see that word again. It's like, okay, let's figure out what this mystery is. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. Jump to verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And you may read that and say, wow, there's a lot of stuff in there I don't quite understand and and we're not going to dig into all of that right now. But the two things that come out of that are that Christ brought salvation and made it available to all men, Gentiles included. Christ brought salvation. It's available to all. And that should blow our minds. Because God didn't have to do anything for us. He didn't have to create the church. He didn't have to draw people to Himself. But because He loved them, He sent His Son to be the sacrifice for our sins. 
And this is where the circle starts. Because then we see that the mystery is Christ is pulling a people to Himself and redeeming a church to Himself. And so then we come back to what is our view of church? It is the people that God cherishes and drew to Himself. In verse 3, as we mentioned, Christ is sufficient. All treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Him. We don't have to go other places. We don't have to seek man's wisdom to try to solve all of our problems, but we need to be coming back to His Word. And our first question should always be, what is my walk like with Christ? How much time have I spent in the Word? If Christ is the source, if He is the head, have I tapped into that? Or have I completely ignored it? One other thing on this verse, in verse 2 there, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. That word for understanding is a very specific word that doesn't mean knowledge. It's not just talking ahead knowledge, but Paul chooses a word here that says, I understand it and put it into practice. Very appropriate as he's talking about encouraging the saints and being united in love. And he says, I want you to grow in your understanding of the mystery, which is Christ. And, and it's, it's not just knowledge, but I know how to wisely put it into practice. Those of you that are parents, you undoubtedly have many times told your kids, will you go do this? Do you understand what I'm asking? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then they sit there. And you're frustrated. Okay, the knowledge might be there, but have they applied the knowledge to life? No, and so have they really understood it? That's the word that's used here. And so when Paul says, I want you to know the mystery of God's Word and understand it, he is saying, I want you to put it into practice. And he's already told us two ways that we can do that. Encouraging each other's souls, being knit together in love. Finally, verses 4 and 5. We know the, the church is worth fighting for. We know we're to fight for the right things. And in verses 4 and 5, Paul says that the right fight protects the church. The right fight protects the church. In verse 4, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments or with nice-sounding promises, nice-sounding arguments, sort of, the salesman mentality. Sorry if we have any salesmen here. But, but the salesman that will promise you things and make it sound so appealing and then not follow through with anything, Paul is saying, I say all of this that you won't listen to them, that you won't be deluded or deceived by them. What has he said? Will protect us? Encouraging one another, being knit together in love, pointing to an absolute devotion to Christ. Those are the walls he puts up around the city of the church. It says, this is how you protect yourselves. This is how you will, you will stand firm. Verse 5, as we end. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And Paul continues to talk about protecting the church, but now he does what he's been saying and he begins to encourage their souls. And he does it with two ways. I, I, 
although I'm absent, yet I'm with you in spirit. I'm there with you not only in heart, but in spirit because we share the same spirit indwelling us. Spiritually, we're connected. We have a bond. We're knit together. Do you see how he's working it in? We're knit together. And then he encourages them by saying, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And I want to end with just a practical explanation of what those words mean. I need five men to come up here. Five men to come up here. You're not going to eat anything weird. Thank you. There's one. I need four more. There's two more. I need two more. Just stand right here. There's one more. I need one more man. Alex, come on down. John, you can come too. We can do six. Two words that Paul uses. Rejoicing to see your good order. And that word, taxis, is, is from putting a line in order for battle. Okay? And so the idea is that Paul is saying you have linked arms. So go ahead and link arms. You have stood together and you are ready for battle. Okay? Is this a, an intimidating force? A little more intimidating than just me up here? Paul is saying to the church at Colossae, this is what I see you doing. This is what I see you doing. Is this encouragement? It's encouragement toward right thinking. And it's being knit together. See, now, if, if I come and say, you know what, I'm going to attack one of you. you know, that's a little hard. <laughs> go, 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 go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> It's hard to push them down, right? That's the imagery Paul is using spiritually to say if we are united, if we are coming together, the false teachers that come and say, you know, you really aren't saved. Doesn't faze him. You know what? You, you really need to worship some other gods. Doesn't faze him. Why? Because they are a line. Rejoicing to see your good order. And then he says, in the firmness of your faith, which referred to the strength of troops to resist the enemy. The strength here. Alex, go ahead and unlink for a minute. Stand over here. <laughs> a little easier to push him, right? Sorry, don't, don't get mad at me. <laughs> you, you can link back up. Thank you, gentlemen. You can sit down. You can sit down. <laughs> See, we stand firm together. And when we try to walk our Christianity without the unity of God's church that He bought with His price, we're able to be pushed around and we fall back. The title today was Something Worth Fighting For. I pray that we've caught God's words through Paul that the church is worth fighting for. Dear Lord God, thank You for Your sacrifice that we can be sons and daughters We can be a family. Lord, help us as Village Bible Church to link arms, to join together that Satan and none of his deceptions can push us over and we'll take the fight to the world and reach the world for Christ. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen.